Broadcasting from the UNMC College of Nursing, get ready for RN Huddle, the podcast dedicated to bringing hot topics for and by nurses to the table. Well, hello there. Welcome to RN Huddle. This is your host, Heidi Keeler, coming to you from the great state of Nebraska. And we are going to talk about an interesting topic. Uh, unfortunately, I wish that we didn't need to talk about this, but we are going to address sexual assault today. And we're going to be talking with three SANE nurses, that sexual assault nurse examiners. We're going to be talking to three of our own, Nicole Lenahan, Amy Mead, and Katie Bueller, all working in our own Nebraska Medicine Emergency Department. And so they are going to give us a sampling of what to do when somebody discloses this information to you, how to react, what to do, how to keep your care patient focused, and really giving us some some good tips as to how to proceed if we find ourselves in this situation. So without further ado, ladies. So my name is Amy Mead, and I am the nursing manager of the emergency department at Nebraska Medicine Bellevue, and I have had the honor of being a sexual assault nurse examiner for the last 10 years. I'm Nicole Lenahan. I am an emergency nurse and nursing professional development specialist for the emergency department on main campus, and I have been a sexual assault nurse examiner since 2016. My name is Kate Bueller. I'm a staff nurse at Maine Campus Emergency Department, and I have been a sexual assault nurse since 2016. So, Amy, what is a SANE nurse? So, a SANE nurse is a, is a nurse by training, but they also have advanced training and experience in caring for patients who have experienced violence, specifically sexual violence. So, some of the things that we do is we provide very patient-focused care for a special population of patients. agree with that. So why did you become a SANE nurse, Nicole? I became a SANE nurse really for two reasons. The first reason was um, while working in the ER, I had watched a couple uh, sexual assault exams or rape kits being completed, um, even did a couple on my own before I went through extensive training. And it can be pretty anxiety producing because there is a, a chance and, and sometimes a good chance that you can um, end up in court and testifying. And I wanted more education on that. And then the second reason, um, which is a, probably a little bit deeper, is that I wanted to kind of help fight some public misperceptions about sexual assault and sexual assault victims. I think up until recently, we have lived in a society with kind of a pervasive rape culture that normalizes sexual abuse and even blames victims. And so um, I really felt like I needed to be there to tell these patients that the only thing that matters is your consent. And if you have not consented to a sexual act, it is a crime. Uh, yet we still have these ideas. People have ideas that it's, it's about, you know, whether you've been drinking or what you're wearing or who you're with um, that contributes. And, and it doesn't at all. So I just wanted to be a voice for these patients to tell them it's, it's not your fault. I think that's a great point. And I think when I think about what my why is or why I became a sexual assault nurse examiner, when you think about violence, um, sexual assault or rape is really kind of the most intimate form of violence that a person can experience. And so when you see these patients and they come from a place where they've just been so traumatized, knowing that, um, that rape really is a crime of power and control, I like to be there to help those patients to give back as much power as I can. 
So I can't help what happened to them, but what I can help is arm them for the future and their recovery, not only their physical recovery, but also their emotional recovery, and also giving them the opportunity to seek justice for what's happened to them. Right. I so- agree with that. I think part of the reason I became a sane nurse was I part of medicine and nursing in particular is you have the opportunity to become a patient advocate and help them uh, control their health care. And in this particular situation, oftentimes women come to us feeling with a loss of power, and we are very much an empowering group of people and allow the patient to take control of her health care and her destiny of what she does next. And that's why I like being a sane nurse. So, Kate, how do you become a sane nurse? Well, first you have to become a nurse. And after you get your feet wet as a nurse and you feel comfortable and you've worked for a while and you're ready for a new challenge, you can become a sane nurse. And what you do is what we did is we took a class with the International Association of Forensic Nurses. Um, Nicole and I did an online class, which was 40 hours of training, um, mostly didactic work. And then afterwards, we were trained by Amy to do the skills portion of our forensic exam. Did you, what, how do, how are you trained? You're trained so when I went through my training, I did an in-person class and it was really the same. The basis of the curriculum for the class is very consistent and it really follows the guidelines set forth by the International Association of Forensic Nurses, which is fantastic because you know that any sane nurse, no matter where they trained or what state they practiced in, they really have the basic foundation that's consistent and that's rooted in evidence-based practice and really what is best in forensic care. So why is it important to have SANE nurses available? So I think that there's a lot of different reasons why SANE nursing is so important, especially in the emergency department. You know, when you bring a patient like this who's experienced a traumatic event and they're in that hustle bustle of the ED and there's kind of a lot of things going on, to be able to have someone who is specialized in this kind of training, understands how to talk to these patients, can really focus on that patient-centered care, and then have the expertise to do what is right for that patient in terms of not only providing a medical exam, but also providing a forensic exam and then guiding what types of, what next steps they need to make sure that you're sending them off on the right foot for recovery. I think that as we're all emergency nurses, we know how we have long wait times and um, patients can wait for a while. It's important to have um, sane nurses because we room these patients right away We anticipate their needs and address any of the needs that they have. We also answer their questions because they have a lot of questions on what's going to happen in the future. And I think we coordinate care with, because we work with a team. I mean, it takes our physicians, our pharmacists, our, you know, sane nurses. It takes a team of people to care for these patients. And it also ensures that this standard of care is met for patients who've been victims of sexual assault. But it also leads to increased reporting rates, better evidence collection. Uh, techniques, uh, since we're trained on that, and also higher percentages of criminal prosecutions. Because we do know that out of a thousand sexual assaults, 995 perpetrators will walk free. And there are more perpetrators of sexual violence. Uh, We know that they are less likely to go to jail or prison than any other criminals. I also think what makes sane, I mean, specifically for people that don't necessarily know about sane nurses, We care for these patients on a one-on-one basis. So similar to like if you're in the ICU, that is your only patient at that time, which allows you to build a trusting relationship with that patient, a rapport, um, and makes them feel comfortable, which is why there is increased reporting, increased uh, better evidence collection, things of that nature. Um, So I think it's really important to 
just touch on the fact that we are very individualized care as say nurses. And Kate, I think you bring up another important point. So we help to give the patient a better understanding and education on what their options are. Because after a patient's experienced an assault like this, they really do have a lot of options and the decision is theirs on how they want to proceed forward. And one of the things that we also help to do is that we bring together all the services that the patient needs. So, you know, in terms of reporting, if the, cho- if the patient wants to report their assault, we bring together law enforcement. We bring together advocates that will help the patient to coordinate, you know, everything that happens after they leave the hospital in terms of like that emotional support, counseling, you know, support with legal and, and even being an advocate and going with that patient when they need to testify or when they have to talk and have more in-depth interviews with law enforcement. So let's get into exactly kind of what we do in the emergency department. So first off, Amy, what is a medical forensic exam? So, you know, typically when you come to the emergency department, you expect that you're going to have a medical exam and it's provided by a, by a provider and they're doing that physical assessment, looking for any injuries you have, investigating, you know, what it is that that chief complaint that you came in for. But when when you think of a forensic exam, it's really marrying that medical exam, um, looking for injuries, identifying opportunities, you know, to help that patient, whether it be prescribing medications to prevent sexually transmitted infections or pregnancy. But then it's also that step further. So it's helping that patient to collect forensic evidence. So Nicole, you mentioned this before when we talked about the rape kit. A forensic exam includes that portion of it. So we're collecting that evidence that may be there. And then also we are documenting for the patient what injuries they have. And then we will we'll take pictures of the injuries as well so that we can help that patient to speak for them or, or to speak on behalf of what we see when it comes to the legal process. Right. So who, who are some of the people that we care for? In our ER, we take care of people that are older, generally older than 13. So adults, uh, men, women, transgender people, gay people, lesbians, straight people, really anyone that walks through our doors that expresses the need for a forensic exam. Now, Kate, you brought up an important point. So when it comes to the evidence collection in that forensic exam, those the, the patients that we care for are typically adults or patients who um, are 13 or older. But we certainly do see um, children who are younger that, mm-hmm. than that who either have expressed that they've experienced sexual assault or their family members have concern about that. And we have a really wonderful resource in our community that we partner with who provide very age-specific care for these patients. And so we, we coordinate with law enforcement and then also with Project Harmony to help get those patients to an area with people who have specialized skills, trainings, and then tools to care for, for the, our younger patients. So when a patient presents to the emergency department, typically what we do is first and foremost, we're uh, emergency nurses. So we have to decide and determine if there are any life-threatening injuries and those have to be addressed first. We will get them into a room quickly and um, address any of those concerns. If there aren't any life-threatening injuries, then in Nebraska, the patient actually has some options for reporting. But a few things we have to know first are whether or not it's a mandatory report. We are mandatory reporters. So in the state of Nebraska, anyone under the age of 18, any assault that occurs um, has to be reported to law enforcement and child protective services. Also a vulnerable adult, anyone with a guardian needs to be reported to law enforcement. In Nebraska, it's important to point out that age of majority is 19, but for sexual assault is 18. So um, anybody 18 years and older, it is a mandatory report if 
there is serious bodily injury or that injury is caused by the use of a deadly weapon. If that is not the case, then um, patients have options for reporting. And so some of those options are they can do just medical treatment only. So we would have a medical screening exam, we would treat their injuries, and we would prophylactically treat them for STDs, pregnancy, HIV. They can choose to have a full law enforcement report with evidence collection. And um, as of two years, two years ago, they can anonymous report, which is a huge win uh, for patients in Nebraska. So if there's a full report, they give their statement to law enforcement, we collect evidence, and they can have a police investigation. Anonymous reporting is very unique because it allows patients the opportunity to have evidence collected that would otherwise be destroyed. And how does that work, Kate? Well, I just want to touch real quick on anonymous reporting just because at first when I heard about anonymous reporting, my initial thought was, well, why would we do that? Why don't we want to encourage reporting? But statistically, it's shown that if we allow anonymous reporting, the goal is to get men and women to present to the ER to have necessary medical care and not have that that sense of doom over them. Well, now I have to report. Now I've talked to the police. Now I've talked to an attorney. Now I have to do all this long list of things. Whereas opposed to if we say, hey, we're going to take care of you. What are your needs? And then when we get them their options, and one of those being anonymous reporting, it allows that patient time and space to think about what they want to do next. And again, that just goes back to empowering the patient right. to make. A big reason why three out of four sexual assaults go unreported, Amy, is because? Because the, re- the victims choose not to report. They have fear of retaliation. They believe that the police um, either won't help them or are not able to help them especially because a lot of times they know the person who assaulted them. Mm-hmm, most um, times. Eight mm-hmm. out of 10 rapes are committed by someone known to the victim. And so they're still trying to wrap their brains around what does this mean in terms of their life and the context of their life in the future. And so a lot of times patients aren't ready at that moment, you know, in that post-traumatic state where they're not ready to make that decision. And what I think is beautiful about the anonymous reporting law um, and why it was so necessary is because what we know for forensic evidence collection is that we really, to be able to collect evidence, We really need to collect evidence within that first 120 hours. That's our best chance of getting anything that's going to be, that'll be identifiable. And and so for those patients, sometimes they're just not ready in that first 120 hours to make that decision whether or not they want to go through, you know, the legal process. And, And that can be very hard for patients and every patient is different. But this gives them, like Kate said, like it gives them time and space to really kind of sort that out, deal with the immediate trauma about their own safety, what they've experienced. And then make those decisions kind of down the road a little bit. And, and, and it can be years down the road where they can make the decision that they want to convert from an anonymous report to a full report. Right. And what that looks like is uh, we collect evidence. Patient name, patient um, identifiers don't go on the kit. Essentially, um, the patient's name becomes the kit number. And they really don't even have to interact with law enforcement. Uh, mm-hmm. We can call law enforcement to pick up the kit even after the patient is discharged. And then law enforcement will hold that kit for 20 years. And uh, at any time, the kit will be processed when the patient converts to a full report. So we do this by consenting the patient. And Kate, you want to talk about consenting for a little bit? Yeah. So we specifically talk about consent with our patient throughout this entire process of their forensic exam. When they come in, we tell them we're going to medically treat them. And then we talk about the forensic exam. The forensic exam consent include consent to treat consent for blood draw, consent for HIV testing, and then also, and importantly, photography. 
I personally only take pictures when someone has an observable in injury. So, and I'll tell them, you know, if I see an injury, I'd really like to include a picture in your chart. That being said, as I take pictures, I will make sure continuously that's okay with them because the nature of this crime, these injuries could be in really vulnerable places. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that the patient knows that the, these pictures are safe and they're giving my, they're giving me their consent. And at any time, the patient can stop. Yeah. Uh, this is very patient-centered, um, very patient-focused. So if the patient wants to do one part of the kit but not the other part, if they don't want to give away their clothes because they typically don't get them back, they don't have to. Uh, it's very, very driven off of what they feel comfortable with. You know, and I think it's important that you know, kind of what you touched on is that it does have to be patient-centered because part of what they're experiencing going through the evidence collection standpoint is, is makes a person feel very vulnerable. You know, so not only are we swabbing their fingernails and swabbing their mouths, but we're also collecting their clothes. We're looking at their body for evidence of any injuries. We're also using things like, like a, a specialized light source so that we can identify areas where there might be leftover DNA evidence from the person who perpetrated this act. And then also, you know, from that, there's a pelvic exam and we collect swabs from the pelvic exam. So all of these things can make a patient feel very, very vulnerable. So we are constantly checking in on them and saying, you know, do you need a little bit of time? Are you ready? Is this, you know, and just making sure that they know that they're in control of the process. Speaking of pelvic exam, I think it's important to note that with SANE nurses, as opposed to your regular bedside nurse, we are trained to do the pelvic exam. We don't do a pap smear or bimanual anything like that, but we do do the pelvic exam. And that's looking for injury. We look for bleeding, lacerations, bruising. And then we also collect swabs of the vaginal wall and of the cervix. And I just think it's important for nurses out there to know that it is really a one-on-one -on -one, like patient-centered care that the same nurses provide. And that's how you help build that trusting relationship. So in caring for these patients, and we talked a little bit about how we collect this evidence and certain things we do, Typically, our kits have 12 steps, although every case is different, and there are times where you would do all 12 steps, and there are times where you would do a couple steps. Um, it also depends on what the patient wants. But let's talk a little bit about injuries. We do know there are many times we don't see any physical injury on a patient, but then there are times, what, what are some common injuries that you guys have seen? I, I think just to, just to stop for one second, um, Nicole, you said there are lots of times where we don't see injury. And I think it's important to note that lack of injury doesn't mean that an assault did not happen. In True. fact, the majority of cases no. that you see, um, the vast majority of cases, you will not be able to see physical injury. And so that doesn't mean that the assault didn't happen. And, and that's important for people to know. Well, Absolutely just, true. Even as something as violent as strangulation, I think it's estimated about one in seven women that are strangled actually show physical signs, meaning bruising around their neck. Um, most women or men, I suppose, don't even show injury of something such so violent as that. So it's important to remind our patients, hey, we believe you, we trust you, we're on your side. It's okay that there's no physical evidence of your assault. Right. So let's talk about strangulation for a little bit. Strangulation, I would say the majority of times is actually a mandatory report. It's serious bodily injury. Um, and we do see things like ligature marks or bruising. What are some of the less subtle symptoms that you would see with strangulation? Coughing, hoarseness when they speak, uh, clearing their throat. If, if your patient has, um, has voice changes, vocal changes, that's a pretty significant sign that there could be very serious injury. So you need to be highly 
concern when right. you see that or when you hear that. Um, patients can also have headaches mm-hmm. with this. They can have petechiae on their face and in their eyes, mm-hmm. also scratches on their neck. And if you see scratches on someone's neck, it's typically not the assailant's scratches. It's the patient's scratches because they are trying to get whatever is on their neck off of their neck. And those are very serious. And a lot of times when this happens, um, these patients are actually admitted to the hospital for observation. It is very serious. Those are some of less subtle symptoms that you can see with strangulation, um, but you really need to be aware of because those are serious. Other common injuries that we see are bruising and abrasions. Kate, what kind of injuries do you see typically with bruising sometimes? Anything from fingerprints on arms or inside of thighs from being held down. I've seen um, bruising on the back of a throat or at a vaginal vault, like the floor of the vagina from forced penetration. But again, those aren't common findings. Those are more uncommon than common. Lacerations I've seen, vaginal lacerations, Mm -hmm. particularly at the six o'clock or the bottom position there. Uh, Amy, do you think... Yeah, you know, I've seen the same. So internally, you want to look to see if you see any bleeding in that vaginal vault, like Kate said, and then if you see any bruising there, even bruising on the cervix, sometimes you'll note that. But then also, you can see little tears and fissures, even between like the labial folds. So before you do your exam, and this is something that I think is unique to forensic nursing, because usually when a provider does a pelvic exam, they're not looking at the skin on the outside as much. But we're taking a little bit of extra time to kind of like, you know, look at the skin, kind of move some of the folds of the skin to see if there's any tears there, because those can be incredibly painful for the patient, but really hard to see just based on like the nature of where kind of the wrinkles are in the skin. Other things that I have seen in terms of injury um, have been like, you know, abrasions to the knees, abrasions to the ankles, abrasions to the elbows, patients that complain of pain to their head because, you know, maybe they were held down or maybe their head was, was hit against something, patients with, you know, physical injury to their face from the assailant. And then, you know, and then also, like we said before, a lot of patients who, who I don't see physical injury, but their story is very consistent with sexual assault. So then as a forensic nurse, when you see those injuries, it really is important. These are the things that you want to make sure you document. So that's when you're using your forensic camera and you're taking pictures. And, and when we take pictures, we use a technique where we take one that's, that's kind of far away. We take one that's a little bit closer, and then we take one with a scale so that when we testify to it, it helps to kind of just be able to speak to the size and the nature. And the one from far away helps you because because as you as you narrow in a picture from the right or left, like a right extremity or a left extremity or the right side of the body or the left side of the body may very much look the same to you. So you really want to make sure that that you know when you're testifying a year later, two years later, three years later, that you're able to with confidence say where that injury where you saw that injury. To build on that, when you collect forensic evidence, whether it be taking photos, swabbing your patient, anything we're doing to collect evidence, it's important that your process is the same every time. Because when you do testify, the attorney is going to say, well, is that what you do every time, Amy? And you have to be able to say, yes, every time I collect a forensic exam, this is how I collect it. You know, the other thing that's important about a sane nurse, and we haven't really spoke to this before, but it's that chain of custody for the evidence. So we are experts in chain of custody. So when we collect that evidence from the moment we open the kit or we start to collect the patient's clothing, that stays with us like in our physical presence until we turn that over to law enforcement so that we can speak to the fact that it was not contaminated in any way. So what are some of the next steps for patients in regards to follow-up care? We've completed the um, evidence collection. A lot of times after that, we take 
the time to order the patient some food, get them something to drink, because we typically don't let them do that beforehand um, in case there's any evidence that we can collect. So um, we try to, at least at this point, be good nurses again and take good care of our patients. But there are also a couple things we need to think about after we're done collecting the kit. Medically speaking, we touched on this earlier. We treat to prevent gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas. If the patient presents within the first 72 hours, we also can provide plan B for pregnancy prevention, providing they have a negative pregnancy in file. And then we can offer NPEP, which is HIV prophylactic treatment. And what that does is essentially a patient has less than a 1% chance of contracting HIV during an assault. However, a chance is a chance. And we want to reassure them that we can help prevent that. So if a patient takes NPEB, which helps prevent HIV, they, it's a 28-day course, and it reduces HIV transmission by up to 80%. Um, so it's important that we educate our patients on those medications. Uh, we also have advocates that come for the patient, and we typically get them involved immediately. And so they help the patient with things like protection orders, safe housing, any therapy or um, counseling that they would need. What are some of the resources that are available in our community for our patients? So this is another really important aspect of seeing nurses. Uh, We are kind of the patient's liaison to legal and community resources. So in Omaha, the patients can use the Women's Center for Advancement. They can use Heartland Family Services. I'm sure there's more. Those are the two that we primarily rely on to help our patients. And it's really important because these women, 94% of women experience symptoms of PTSD in the immediate two weeks, month after they're assaulted. And 33% of women continue to feel PTSD within the nine months. And about 13% of women contemplate or attempt suicide. So our community resources, such as the WCA, they have a lot of support for the patients. They have specific groups for individual types of people who are assaulted. So college support groups, men who have been assaulted support groups, teenagers who experience domestic violence. Unfortunately, that's a reality of our culture is there's young teens that have DV type relationships already. So the WCA is just a great resource for group therapy. They also can provide compensation for victims' compensation. So unfortunately, when a patient walks out of the hospital, we try to do the best we can to reduce the cost, but it's not free. So the WCA helps these patients with funding from the state of Nebraska to pay all of their bills so the patient doesn't have to accrue debt because of their assault. So one of the reasons we, we do see men and women, um, but one of the reasons we are focusing kind of mainly on on talking about females is because nine out of every 10 rape victims are female and young women are especially at risk. Young college-age women, um, 18, 18 to, 24 to 24, are three times more likely to experience sexual assault than any other demographic. But we do care for men, and actually one in 33 American men have experienced um, an attempted or completed rape in their lifetime. Nicole, I think that's a really important point to note, because we know that this particular population is less likely to report, especially you know regarding the stigma that surrounds rape. And at Nebraska Medicine, we see on average about one male patient a month. And I would say over the last year, those numbers have increased steadily. I'd agree with that. I think we've all had more male male cases recently. So a question I often get from people is, do sane nurses have to go to court? 
And um, the answer is yes. So we are not, as a sane nurse, you're not, you're not supposed to be an expert in the law, but having a basic knowledge of the law and the legal process um, does do a lot to help uh, lessen anxiety. So I have never been called to testify, but I know both of you have, Kate in the military court system and Amy in the criminal court system. So um, would you guys like to talk about that for a little bit? So when you talk about the SANE nurse's role in terms of the legal process, it's important to note that the SANE nurse is an unbiased witness, an expert, you would say, in the medical care as well as the forensic care of a patient. And we're really speaking to what it is that we observe and what it is that, that we've documented and we've collected. And so I think that that's important for people to know, that we really are an unbiased voice that's recounting that experience of caring for that patient. I would agree with that. I think when you testify, it's important to remember, one, that you charted well, and because this can happen years after you saw a case. So you will have the opportunity to review your charting and review the case specifically. I found in military court that it was a more respectful environment than you experienced in criminal court, meaning I was interviewed by both the defense and the prosecution who asked me questions, and they wanted very just, what was my charting? What happened to this patient? Move on. Interestingly, in military court, the jury could also ask questions, which was a, what do you call it, a curveball, I guess, yeah. that they <laughs> forgot to tell me about until I was on the stand. And they were like, does the jury have questions? And I was like, well, well that's interesting. It was okay. I think that would catch me off guard, yeah, too. Yeah, one more me. <laughs> uh, anyway. I think it's important just to document strongly and clearly and concisely so when you do have to reflect on it years later that you can the case will come to your memory. I also like to think of it as um, that as a sane nurse, we are not an extension of law enforcement or the prosecution team, but rather we're educators and we are there to educate the judge and the jury and the community on what it is that we do, what our role is. So um, you have to know your own history of your work experience very well. You have to know uh, kind of the steps of what you do. And as Kate said before, very consistently, because they will ask you if you do things the same every time. Also, how we identify, how we collect, and again, how we preserve, as Amy said, the chain of custody. Yeah, I think that's an important point. So um, in preparation for testifying, you'll meet with the prosecution. So I met with the prosecution and we went through some of those things because really what the what they want the judge and the jury to understand is, you know, what are my qualifications? What, what makes me someone who is qualified to s- sit in front of the jury and tell the story of this particular patient's case and their experience? And, um, and so you really do have to speak to what is your training? What is your experience? What is the process? You know, really educate them on what sane nursing looks like. So once a patient has spoke with us, has talked with law enforcement, the community resources, we then discharge them. You know, and and if you're at a facility that has the availability for even things like a shower, like a shower can be Mm -hmm. incredibly therapeutic for a patient after they've experienced an assault and all of the evidence collection kit and providing them with, you know, new clean clothes. So we do that for all of our patients. And then also, like Nicole Nicole stated on providing them with a meal. And it, and really, that kind of serves two purposes because the medications that we give can make a person feel incredibly sick. You know, sometimes I've had patients, you know, start vomiting before they even leave. And so getting a little bit of food and, and something to kind of settle their stomach prior to some of those medications is important. 
And then also making sure that they have a plan. So are they going home to someplace that's safe? You know, we don't, we certainly don't want to send them home to a place where their perpetrator is, you know, where they're not going to feel safe. And then um, from that, setting them up for success. So making sure that we talk to them about what follow-up cares need, because they'll need repeat testing. And then also just checking in with a provider, you know, based on their, their needs for emotional well-being, that they have regular contact with, uh, you know, whether it be a primary care or a counselor or a psychiatrist. So let's talk a little bit about some of these hard, emotionally triggering cases. There's, I think there's a limit to how much we can take in and process. And as emergency nurses, we know all too well about secondary trauma or vicarious trauma. I think coming face to face with someone else's trauma, it's, it can be very um, emotionally draining for you. And, and this is, is no exception either. So Kate, tell us a little bit about some of these emotionally draining cases. And actually one in particular comes to my mind, and that was a night you had where you, I think, had three cases. I did. That was a bad night. I think I was on call on sexual assault nurse, like same call. And I think I got called in at 11 p.m. for my first case. And I finished that probably around 2 a.m. And another case came in, two cases actually, within a half an hour came in. So I went from 1 at 2 a.m., finished at about 4 a.m., and then had my third one from, I don't know, I think it was all of a sudden done. It was about eight hours, which was far too long. Yeah. And I think (laughs) at that point, our next meeting after that, we all realized that that was too much. And we have to be able to tap out and say, I'm I'm done. I, I want to support these patients, but I am emotionally too tired to care for them compassionately. And so we, we recognize that in each other. And we, we talked to each other and, and we said at that point, okay, there's got to be a time yeah. when you can say, I can't do anymore. Well, I think it's important because kind of Amy had touched on it. This, they are, we are empathetic people by nature. We are nurses. However, seeing nurses in particular really care and want the mm-hmm. best for their patients. And so we sit there with them and we hold their trauma with them. And that is, I mean, overwhelming sometimes yeah. and quite frankly, exhausting so we do need to debrief with each other and just kind of talk about what happened and make sure that we're okay too. Right. I don't think any of us could do this without the support we have in each other and families and um, friends. I mean, you have to have some healthy activities and, and things like that too. Um, not even as, as a sane nurse, but as an emergency nurse, you have to have a good support system. You know, here at Nebraska Medicine, so over the last five years, we've really built a very strong team. So we have... 12 nurses who are trained as sexual assault nurse examiners. And we are just, you know, like Kate said, just a very passionate group of people who care about what we're doing. And so we do really lean on each other to support each other through this. And we're still building our team and we are available as resources too for the entire hospital. So if a patient's on a floor and has disclosed to someone that they've been assaulted, we're available not only to collect evidence and do a kit, but for questions and education purposes. And we really just want to get the word out as to who we are and what we do and make our team available for the entire hospital. So we understand the subject matter that we talked about was super heavy and a lot to bear. However, we are empowered by both empowering our patients and also just working with each other and lifting each other up. Mm -hmm. So thanks for listening. Well, thank you so much for this expert information. You know, if you're in nursing long enough, you may find yourself in this situation. And this has really helped us to 
learn a little bit more about what to do when you are in this situation, if you have someone or patient disclose the information, and really given us some good expertise as to how these cases unfold. So thank you so much. I hope you've learned on this episode of RN Huddle. Until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening to RN Huddle. To stay connected, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at UNMC CNE or check out unmc.edu slash CNE for more program information.